You know, Romans is going to take us this morning into how to walk as children of the light, and specifically how to love, and the understanding that we have to go in this morning before we read a single passage in Romans 12 is to understand Romans 1 through 11, which says this in a nutshell, any love that we have for other people is only a response from the love he has for us. I don't know what kind of week you've had, whether it's been um, a really good week or a really poor week in your mind. I want to assure you that God is for you and God is with you. I want to steer your attention to Isaiah 42 for a moment, and I want you to listen carefully for how God feels about you. Here it is. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now, I know some of you are astute, and you say, wait a minute, that's a messianic prophecy. That's talking about Jesus. How can you say that's how God feels about us? This, friends, is what it means to be clothed in Christ. That when God the Father sees us, he sees us clothed in Christ. So this is, this is how God sees us. As a chosen, delighted-in servant. Here's what's extra powerful about this passage we then carry on our master's work, that we walk forward seeking justice empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is what a Christian steps into. This is the new life that we have. If you're new here and not a disciple of Jesus yet, here's what I'd invite you to do. I'd invite you to listen to this passage in Romans and see if you don't find it utterly compelling. If not idealistic, you may hear it and think that's super idealistic, but it will be compelling and noble is my hunch. I would hope that you would investigate further, that if you were to see that passage and say, can anyone really live like that, that it would prompt further investigation. If you're new here and a Christian, here's what I would say. I just pray, my prayer is that the scriptures would enliven your passion this morning. Renew your faith. Restore your hope. It's an amazing passage we're going to get to look at in just a moment. I want us to sing as a church a song that we know well here. If you're new, jump in and try to sing along with us. It's a song called God of Justice, and it's an anthem for Christians who aren't content to talk about love, aren't content uh, to sing and celebrate love one day a week. Um, but, are, but are called to march out of here on a mission, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to get after the good works he's created us to do. So let's sing together. Amen. Kiddos, you're dismissed off to class. Good to have you join us. And the rest of you can open up to Romans 12. And if it's helpful, pull out the sermon notes that may be uh, good to follow along and keep engaged that way. So just in time for Valentine's Day, we're going to be talking about genuine love for the next couple of weeks. And I would submit to you that the kind of love 
that is going to be talked about and celebrated in the coming week or so. Um, there's a lot that's good to it. I don't want to be a downer on everything Valentine's Day, but it seems that maybe it's sort of a pseudo-love that people chase and hold up and celebrate. And the kind of love that we're going to be talking about is real love. And, and I would submit to you this. There's nothing greater in your life that you need today than real love. It will literally impact every single day of your life. Uh, now, love one another and love sincerely are two phrases that no one is really against. No one looks at that and says, that's a bad idea. We shouldn't do that. Um, I don't know how many of you watch the State of the Union. I make it a habit of watching the State of the Union, which shows that I've grown up from being a kid, because I couldn't think of anything more boring growing up than having the State of the Union on TV, uh, which was a rarity to have the TV on as a kid. So I'm like, cool, TV. And after two minutes, I lost interest. Here's what's fascinating about the State of the Union address. In the State of the Union address, there is a president up speaking, and half of the room claps every 30 seconds for what he's saying, right? And what is the other half doing? They are sitting and visibly showing their discomfort and their potential disgust. So it's really a classic thing. Whenever the president is speaking, no matter which side of the aisle he's on, half of them are going, Woohoo! And he's got one countenance when he talks to this side and another countenance when he tries to like forcibly look over to people who are throwing darts at him with their eyes. Except for, we ought to genuinely love everyone. Now, no Democrat or Republican wants their elected, uh, you know, the people that elected them to see them not clapping for that one. So there are some things like love genuinely and world peace, they better be clapping for. The whole room's going to clap, even if it's sort of begrudgingly. Love sincerely is one of those that would get both sides of the aisle clapping. And at the end of that, everyone would say, ho-hum. They wouldn't really be that excited about it. And here's why. Love everyone and world peace are so vague that they don't really mean anything. Are you tracking? So love everyone could mean um, something like this. It, It could mean that love everyone means love no one. Right? Because love everyone is easier. Loving someone is really, really challenging. Or it could mean love who you feel like loving in the moment. I'll love everyone as long as I feel like it. And as long as they're treating me a certain way, then I'll love everyone. But love sincerely, love everyone is sort of meaningless. So what does the word love mean and who gets to decide what the right definition is? Furthermore, what happens when one person's version of love equates to another person's version of hate? Does this sound vaguely familiar to you people? This is what we're hearing all the time right now. Here's something I get to do as a pastor, which I absolutely love. I love to stand at at the wedding altar with two people standing in front of me. And through six weeks of premarital marriage counseling and now standing here at the altar in front of God and witnesses, I look at these two people and I say, Husband, wife, love each other. And you know what they all say? Got it. Yep, we're good. And then I go, no, 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 really love each other. Yep, we're all over it. We got it. What happens is this. They don't actually do that in the wedding, but that's what they're telling with their eyes. What's happening is this. 
The man thinks he has it, and he has understanding of what that looks like and what the expectations are and how he's going to move forward in that. And the woman has expectations and understandings of exactly what that means. And guess what? They don't line up, ever. They never perfectly line up. That's what makes spice in marriage, and that's what keeps marriage counselors in business, right? Is that there's always differences there. These are the two people that have chosen each other. They have the best intentions for each other. And yet there's differences going on. That's why I always read scripture at a wedding. I always point back to what God says about love so we can get clear on definitions of what we are talking about. We've been talking in Romans 12 about this idea that worldviews are, are resting on ideas that we believe to be true. So there are some of you in this room this morning, quite possibly, that believe to your core belief that we got here because of time plus chance. That the created order, the universe, and us, we, we are here because of time plus chance. And I would submit to you this, that your definition of love, you can't appeal to a higher authority than yourself. So when it comes to loving or not loving, guess who gets to decide? Me. When it comes to deciding what love is and what hate is, who gets to decide? Me. But I would also submit to you that, that an equally valid logical step then would be you cannot impose your definition of love and hate on someone else because they are also equally top authority in their life to run their life as they have chosen fit. Now, I'm a Christian. I believe that the world was created, that everything we see was created. That's why we put the video up, that, that there was once darkness and God spoke light into it. In fact, he didn't only uh, identify himself in creation, but he identifies himself as love. I'm a Christian, and so I have a captain. His name is Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ did better. Thank you, Everly, for that. Jesus Christ did better than, um, than just tell us what love was like. He came and he modeled it. He lived it for us. And so as a follower of Jesus, I am going to get dialed in and say, God, I know that I have my own warped ideas about what love and hate are. Would you show me the path of love? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. You know, Jesus is respected and looked up to by believers and non-believers alike around the world. He is quoted and held up and pointed to as a model of sort of the best of what we see in ourselves. For the most part, when people start digging too deep into the Gospels, they go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. But for the most part, it's easy to sort of highlight Jesus and think that that what he uh, says and stood for was really, really good. The fact of the matter is, this is our passage today. This passage was written by Paul. Paul's life was so turned upside down by meeting the risen Jesus Christ that he altered the course of his life completely. And if you look at our passage this and next week, it's sort of a summary. It's like cliff notes to the great sermon Jesus preached that we have recorded, the Sermon on the Mount. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7, and then you sort of overlay it with our passage, what you'll see is sort of like these are like community group questions or, or action points to all that he preached over here. So we see Jesus' teaching infused in Paul's teaching. If you take out three words from our passage today, I think you would get the entire country clapping for this part of the speech. I think they would just say, yes, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, I'm a believer, I'm an atheist, I'm, I'm, you know, whatever. You would get people standing up and cheering for this 
noble picture of a life well lived. So how is it that true love got Jesus killed? That's a valid question. Why is it that living love out loud deeply offends other people? If we agree to these parts, why is it that it's so challenging? Two weeks ago, for the high school winter camp, um, we, sorry, I'm one behind here. There we go. We had this as our theme, real love. And uh, the sweatshirts came in kind of early. I, was, I got to go and be the speaker out, so I threw the sweatshirt and I went home. And this logo caused quite a stir. Before I even left, Gria was in the office, and he goes, whoa! And he kind of sees the heart. And, you know, I stuck my hand in it, and I made it beat, and so that freaked him out even more. I went home for dinner, and my seven-year-old is sitting across the table from me, and he looks at that, and he goes, what is that? I said, that's a picture of a heart. And he goes, that's what a heart looks like? And the rest of the meal, my little seven-year-old was like this, And I saw him between bites just pondering this whole new paradigm that this isn't actually what is sitting in our body. This is a representation. I bring that up because of this. My prayer this week has been this. God, maybe some in this room would have such a paradigm shift of what love is or maybe be called back to what real love is that it would be like a seven-year-old that goes, wow, it's not this It's something much more robust, something much more uh, uh, different. I'll tell you what happens with real love is it's messier. It's far more complex than the simple symbols and sort of syrupy, sweet sentiment that we're going to get in in droves this coming week. And it is infinitely more satisfying. And it's infinitely worth pursuing more so than a symbol of pseudo-love. Faith, hope, and love. These three words carry just immense meaning for Christians throughout the centuries. But the greatest of these is love. Love tops the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, according to Jesus and others, is what all of the law and the prophets rests on. It's at the foundation of it. It's such an amazing theme that Paul's going to return to this idea next chapter in Romans 13, 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. So this morning we're going to look at what are the, what are the marks of the true love of a true Christian. And the way we're going to do that is I'm going to ask you seven questions from the text. By way of review, God gifts us, Christians, with supernatural gifts for the common good. One of the large messages last week was use them. Use the gifts that we've been given. That means actually swim. Don't know your lane. Don't study strokes. Actually get in the pool and run the race. And don't just run the race. Stay in your lane, get your Phelps face on, run to win, right? Stay the course, help the team. What follows from using our spiritual gifts is a sort of code of conduct. It's this idea that our attitudes and our words 
need to line up with our actions. There's a way of doing things with our gifts in such a way that Paul writes elsewhere, clang, 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 it's just noise. If it's not done without, without love, it's just, it's just noise. Stop it. Please stop using your gift. It's not being done in love. There's no common good to a symbol just crashing over and over and over. Here's one final invitation before we get started. Sometimes we, and I'll raise my hand, we are tempted to learn truth for other people. Aren't you reading a book or reading a passage or listening to a sermon sometimes? You're like, oh man, this would be so good for my wife to hear. Oh, she's right next to me. Bah! Oh, my kids need to hear this. Oh, my boss could really use this book. That'll be a good Valentine's gift for her. Instead, this morning, I want you to take the mirror of Scripture and I want you to have an accurate self-reflection. Remember from our talk last week, don't think of yourself too highly. We want you to think accurately about yourself. So hold this mirror up to yourself first. I'll let you know up front, this week, as I've been studying, I've been practicing what I just told you to do. Instead of learning this for other people and thinking how much other people could need this, I've held this up to myself. And so we're going to get started. If you're taking notes, write this down. First question we're going to look at is, am I sincere? Verse 9 says, let love be genuine. Am I sincere? Sort of the structure of the language of this obscures this reality that this one uh, sort of rapid fire, uh, he's going to give 28, by the way, in the next two weeks, 28 rapid fire action items. This one uh, acts as sort of a heading for everything, everything else that follows. The word he uses in the Greek is agape, and so it's the ultimate model of sacrificial, uh, selfless love. If you'll notice on your notes, I've already said this, that we're going to see what distinguishes true love from a true Christian. What do I need to distinguish true love and true Christian? Here's why. Because we've all been burned by... And we all know fakes. We all know people who have faked love. We all know people who have faked uh, being a Christian. And let's get really personal and intimate. We've all been the fake as well. We've all played the role of love. We've played the role of Christian. So that's why I distinguish between true love and true Christian. Now, here's sort of this strange phenomenon. I've grown up and lived in the Silicon Valley for all but 10 months of my life. The 10 months that I didn't live here, I lived in Colorado Springs, which is sort of a Christian mecca of, of the country, which is sort of bizarre, uh, but it was a cool place to live. I have always lived in the affluent country of America. And there's something that sort of comes along with the Christian community in affluent cultures, and that is this. It is possible to have um, Christianity take on a culture of niceness and politeness as sort of the ideal. And reducing the death of Jesus Christ as Jesus died to save us from the demon of bad manners. And that's sort of the highest vision we can go is that we would, we would produce uh, polite, nice, Productive citizens of our country. 
And if you travel outside of the United States, just this week I was reading what it's like to be a Christian in Iran. If you're a Christian in a place where Christians are hated violently physically, it has this way of weeding out the fakes, doesn't it? No longer does it seem worth it to come and be trained in politeness as you come to church or drop your kids off at youth group. You go to where you could lose a job or a limb or a head, and you get straight on real love pretty quick. The word here literally is without hypocrisy. God, would you help us to love in such a way that we are freed from the fake? There's a temptation to turn church into a stage play. And people up front like me, and people who are in the band, and people who are doing things, and people who all come and attend, we all roll through our lines for about an hour a week, and then we go back to our real life. That's a temptation that's there. We talk about it all the time. We pray against that all the time. But it's there and it's a temptation. In New Orleans, um, I was there, I don't know, maybe a year or so after Katrina hit with some college students. And as we were there, we were talking to one of the pastors who was from an inner city church. Uh, down, down near where things were hit pretty hard, and they had partnered up. Uh, they were a mostly black church. They had partnered up with a mostly white suburban church that had a lot of money and still had a facility that was standing. And it was just an incredible partnership uh, that probably wouldn't have formed otherwise. And here's what they told me. They said, you know, before Katrina, there were hundreds of churches all around the Ninth Ward, all around New Orleans, And post-Katrina, there are dozens of churches left, a handful. I think we can count them on a few hands. And as he told me that and shared that with me, it reminds me this morning of this, that true love stays to clean up the mess and rebuild. Imposters, then they bolt for greener pastures. I knew what the person was implying, but I said, why did the others leave? He said, there's no more money here. There's no one left to follow. There's just real hard work. By the way, if you're thinking of getting married, there's a lesson for you here. True love is more difficult to spot before the hurricane hits. So keep your eyes open. It's harder to tell unless you've been through a few storms if that person really loves you or is an imposter. In fact, it's harder to tell your own self whether you really love that person or you're an imposter. Here's number two. Am I discerning? Still in verse nine, it says, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Does it strike you as odd that he says love and then hate in the very same verse? It shouldn't. Let me show you why. Sincere love, agape love, is what gives rise to hate. You say, well, aren't we supposed to not hate anyone? No. You ever see a mild-mannered mom with her child threatened? Man, you don't want to get between mild-mannered mom and that baby if that baby is threatened. In fact, what gives rise to the hate that anything that would injure that child, take that child, is in fact the depth of that agape love. 
the quality of that love. So the more pure the love, the more self-sacrificial the love, the deeper the hate for anything that would hurt or harm or take or kill the beloved. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. True love is discerning. True love is not blind. Part of becoming a child of God is you take on a new nature. It's just something that happens to you. We can cooperate with it, but we can't stop it. It's part of the new birth process. When kids join our family, it's so great to to watch sports with my children because they'll come down, they'll plop themselves next to me, and they go, who are we cheering for, Dad? I love it. So I get to disciple them in the ways of sports, which to me is about this important versus some other things that are up here, but I still disciple them nonetheless. And by saying, who are we cheering for, they know there's only going to be one winner. So, so by virtue of that fact, they know they're cheering, uh, they're not rooting for this other team. Now, that is until they hit their teens, and then they want to cross paths. Anyways, that's a whole different story. Who are we cheering for, Dad? And that's, that's the same question that begins to stir in us, isn't it? That's what it means when God comes and he, he brings new desires to us. We find ourselves okay with things until we become a Christian, and then it's very upsetting because we're not okay with it anymore. Whether you've been a Christian for five minutes, five years, or longer than I've been alive, church, would that a year from now, your sensitivities, your conscience, would grow in a likeness of mimicking the holiness of our Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would grow to hate things more a year from now than you do now that are evil. And that you would cling to good. That you would so pursue good and so seek after good and so saturate your mind and attention with good that other things become not just a little off-putting, but detestable. And you get something funky in my garbage can inside the house, that thing's not going to stay there for very long. I'm going to take action. I would hope that as a church, as a family, that things that we used to entertain ourselves with that weren't that bad would soon begin to fill our nostrils in such a way as we grow with the Lord and we just spend time with the living God that we go, gosh, I used to tolerate that. You've risen my sensitivities, God, to things that are evil that I can't possibly laugh along with that anymore. It's action films before 9-11 that were super distasteful after 9-11. Remember that? I remember watching 9-11 happen on my TV screen. And everyone said, it's like a movie. Like We can't believe this is happening. And movies realize, wow, to, to take and do some of those things now is really off-putting. That's not the right choice to do. So it would be with us that God would grow us in hating evil along with God and that we would glue ourselves to good bind ourselves to walk and live and speak and think on all that is good. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, test everything and then hold fast to what is good. Implying, man, there's a lot of stuff you're going to have to filter and let go. Look at me for a second. This verse is how you should be listening to this sermon. This verse is how you should read books and blogs. This verse is how you ought to watch movies and listen to political discourse. Test everything, and you hold on to what's good. 
Rob said it well. Rob's an imperfect worship leader. You have an imperfect pastoral staff and elder team. We're going to come and we're going to preach in the power of the Holy Spirit, but we are not the Holy Spirit. So you test everything. You hold on to what's good. Learn to discern whether something is evil or good. The first part of Romans 12 has already told us how to do this. Separate and saturate. Don't be conformed, rather be transformed. This doesn't happen overnight. This muscle actually gets developed by constant use. That means there's going to be some daily practices you'll need to do to begin or continue to work this out. Question three. True love is discerning, but it's also affectionate. Ask yourself, am I affectionate? Look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Let's talk about Philadelphia for a moment. Okay? No, not the football team. Who cares about them? Philadelphia is a word that means what? Brotherly love. It's the city of brotherly love, which is a little ironic if you know. I've never been to Philly, but just sort of the reputation that comes out of Philly. These two words, there's two words used here, both of which have to, talk, have to deal with affection. One is devoted and one is, is affection, the, the brotherly family affection. And they're both phila words. Here's the big idea. Be good friends, church. Be good friends. Be the kind of neighbor to your neighbors that you want to move in next to. I mean, this is really simple stuff. One of the things we can do with Bible study sometimes is, is make this so complex. I've, I've tried to remove like all kinds of complexity because you could read this the same as I could read this. And we're like, yep, don't need word study on that one. I just need to grow in this. I just need to do what the scriptures tell me to do. So here's the question. What concrete ways are you devoting yourselves and expressing warmth to those that you worship with? I'm speaking to Christians. I'm speaking to people who call this their church home. And I start with those you worship with because we're told to do good to everyone, especially to those of the household of faith. How destructive it is when pastors like me, ministry leaders like me, go out and share their love and their time and their devotion. Man, they'll meet with people after a conference for hours and hours and hours, and their own kids want nothing to do with them by the time they're in their teen years because they didn't show them any love at home. Church family, start right here. Don't, don't be altruistic and think, oh, I'll go love all the, the hurting people out there. Yes, please. But let what goes on here be an overflow and outflow. Don't you dare neglect what goes on here. So I ask you, church, what are you doing right now? Concrete examples. Don't do this for other people and what they're not doing to you. What are you doing by the power of the Holy Spirit that communicates warmth and affection to the people you worship with? I'm not going to use her name because I don't want to embarrass her. But sitting in the back this morning... I just saw someone come in, and she walked in, and there was immediate recognition from her church family, and they scooted over to indicate, man, come sit with us. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about anything giant or grand. That just happened, and I witnessed that all the time. Keep it up and press into it. Again, guard against faking it and role-playing for a couple of hours This dries up the soul. You actually train yourself to be hypocritical. 
Call me on this. This is a scary thing to say publicly. But when I ask how you're doing, I mean it. I really want an answer. I'll try my best to listen to that. Practice the same. And the poster child for hypocritical affection, if you could freeze frame the kiss of Judas on Jesus. On his lips, externally, there's praise and worship and adoration and devotion. And in the heart, there's wicked, ugly betrayal. Church, there is massive warning for us to not have praise and affection and brotherly love. Brother, how are you doing? Where there's betrayal and hatred and wickedness and jealousy and resentment in our heart. Number four, am I honoring? Verse 10 says, outdo one another in showing honor. Here's the follow-up question. Do you seek honor or do you give it? The heart of man wants honor. The people want a king. This is seen over and over. This is why we have a superstar culture, right? Even in the church, we have superstar pastors and superstar musicians and superstar evangelists, superstar authors. And the people want a king. This is his oldest time. And the heart of man craves honor. God reveals himself in Isaiah 42 this way. He says, I am the Lord. I will not share my glory with another. So the honor that's being given is not ultimate honor like you worship that person. This is sort of Valentine's Day-ish stuff. And that's why it's so crushing when you get the Dear John letter. But the honor that's talking about is out of honor to God. You say, man, how can I bless and call out praise and call out beauty and call out the image being seen in my fellow brothers and sisters and people around me? You can show honor in so many different ways. You know, we have a lot of competitive people in the Bay Area. And Paul's a great example of this. When you get redeemed, it doesn't take someone who's competitive and make them uncompetitive or passive. What it does is it takes someone who's competitive and driven, and it alters their life so much that all that energy gets pointed to good, that God begins to hone in and refine how that looks. So I'm thrilled that we have a lot of competitive people in the Bay Area. A redeemed person can compete this way. You want to be competitive? Compete this way. Give honor to others better than anyone else you know. Consider other people's needs so much more important than your own that you just, you're just on the lookout that way all the time. And do this without anyone else knowing about it. Be a ninja about it. Just go around thinking this way and outdoing one another in honor. This kind of love makes for an incredible family, doesn't it? Makes for an incredible business place. It makes for an incredible church. Consider the alternative. How tiring and unfulfilling is it if everyone in the family, everyone in the business, everyone in the church wants to make sure that was my idea? Credit right here. Uh, I'm better than you at that. And just constantly power grabbing for little snippets of honor to kind of validate and build up and fulfill. The opposite's exhausting. Number five, am I enthusiastic? Verse 11 says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Bum, 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 bum. Rapid fire. Paul's rapid fire is meant to fire us up. I think if you were to take a poll today of a 100 people, I don't know how many would say this, but probably close to zero would say that religious zeal is what would make this world a better place. What this world needs more of is religious zeal. 
especially in this city. I don't think we'd get many people going, yeah, I think most people would say, no, that's actually probably the last thing we need. But think about it for a second. What if every single person who named the name of Jesus Christ in San Jose and the South Bay general area, what if every single one of them took a passage like we're looking at this morning and they devoted themselves by the power of God to live it out? Wouldn't people be clamoring for more of that? They may not recognize that as religious zeal, but if you walk in the manner worthy of your calling, walking in the manner worthy of wearing the Jesus jersey, then I think people would want more and more of that. Here's an example of where that's going on. Foster the Bay uh, is expanding this year to Marin County. And we're expanding to Marin County because of this. We have very few churches there that we're in contact with that are saying, man, we want to we help empty the foster care system in, in Marin County. We don't have those churches. We don't have specific leaders that are raised up in that county yet. You know what we have? We have government workers in Marin that have been begging us for a year. Would you please come do in Marin County what's going on in Santa Clara County? Foster the Bay is an explicitly Christian organization. It is being pleaded with from not only Marin County, but there's actually others that we're meeting with. Please come and do here what's going on in Santa Clara County. All praise to God the Father and, and that. That's, that's not a Foster the Bay praise. That's an exclamation mark to say that if you are enthusiastic about the good that God calls us to, the world takes notice. Two more. Number six is this. Am I faithful? Am I full of faith? Verse 12 says, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. All three of these point to the person who's living by faith and not by sight. If you're living by sight, you don't do these things. You look elsewhere. You know, your hope tells a lot about you. Where does your help come from? What are you hoping? When you get into a trial and a tribulation and a storm, where do you turn? I would submit to you this, that those who have been genuinely counseled and comforted by God, they won't settle for anything less at that point. And so we remind ourselves, we remind our friends, man, doctors and medicines and effort and money, those all have their place, but none of it is going to bring the peace you're looking for, brother. None of it's the place. that That's not where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord. Are you filled with faith? True Christians love God by rejoicing in him, by trusting him, by calling out to him by name. Finally, the last one is this. Am I generous? Verse 13 says this. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Those who have freely received are now free to give away and they actually give away. There are so many examples of this in our church where I see people that are giving away in a way that doesn't make sense apart from God. And I got to tell you, as your brother, as your Christian brother, and specifically in the role I'm holding right now as the pastor, it utterly thrills my heart. It fans my own faith into flame. There are so many of you that say, look, this is our need, and yet God's pouring over our need. 
And instead of renting more storage units, instead of storing up even more for that rainy day, you're saying, I bet God's entrusting us with stuff because there's needs that need to be met. And that goes on all the time. Church, I would just say kudos. Praise God for that. And all the more lean into it. Share is a huge word around here. It's one of the three things that we talk about, worship and community and share. And when we say the word share, we mean two things. We mean evangelism. I mean, think about what tops the list of what you could give to someone else. Evangelism. Share the gospel. Don't be ashamed of it. But secondly, it means sharing your life and your stuff and your energy. And we get that from places like this in Romans 12. And he doesn't define it super clearly. Is that physical needs or financial needs or spiritual needs or emotional needs or relational needs? Here's the answer. Yes. Any and all of the above. Here's what I want to show you about hospitality for a second. It doesn't say sit around, fold your arms, and wait for someone to come, and if they need hospitality, offer it to them, extend it to them. It says seek to show hospitality. I enjoy the fact that as a pastor, I can watch new people come in, and sometimes I go to try to meet them. I seek them out to just offer and extend a hello, and I can't get to them. Because there's several people deep that are already just ministering and making sure that that person knows that they were seen and that they met someone from the church. And that's a good and healthy picture. An action item for you is to check out the city. The city is a way for us to redeem the Internet. The city is a way for people to post needs and say, hey, I really need some help. I need some counsel. And people just go, I got that. I can do that. It lives on your phone. It lives on your desktop. It's there all the time. What if some of you made a practice to say this year, once a month, I'm going to seek out one family, one individual, one couple, one student. I'm going to make sure that they're going to come to my house or I'm going to take them out and we're going to have a meal together. For no other purpose than just to get to know them, just to get to bless them. And that would be powerful. I close with this. Look back over the list for a second. Anyone else feel a little bit squeamish? Man, I've been reading these seven questions for the whole week. It turns my stomach. I go, ooh, that's, that's a really hard look in the mirror, God. Let me say that loving this way is not hard. It's impossible. It is utterly impossible. We were praying through this as a staff, and one of, our pers- one of our staff said it well. God, this goes against all of my flesh. My flesh pushes against every single one of these. Here's the key. The key rests in going back to what it means to be a Christian. Church, hear me. You are the delighted in, chosen bride of Christ. That's who you are. That's yours. That's never being taken away. As a part of the bride of Christ, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. We all think that we would do better if Jesus were here in the flesh as our personal trainer. Jesus said opposite. He said, it's better that I go away. I'm going to give you better than me in the flesh. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And everywhere you go, he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He will always be there to comfort, to counsel, to help, to remind, and to extend power from on high. You know, the way that God feels about us changes the way we feel and act toward him. In Jesus, we are forever accepted. We are forever the beloved. We are forever secure. No more wondering. No more trying to earn what can't be earned. 
So church, rest in the finished work. Rest in the finished work and don't just hang out there. We rest in the finished work so that we can strive at the good works God has created us to accomplish. I close with this. In your notes, write these three things down. It's clear. It's good to get clear on what God does, what we're supposed to do. What does God do? He models sincere love. He also answers prayer. Not in our timing. Most often not in the way I see fit. Praise God. But he answers prayer. Thirdly, he gives opportunities for us to obey. Here's what we do. We walk like Jesus. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we walk forward in life. Secondly, we pray. God answers pray. We're called to call out to him. Be constant in prayer. And thirdly, we look for ways to obey. We're going to conclude our service this way. We're going to conclude with what we know we ought to do. There's a lot. I don't know what you should do. I don't know what I should do next week. I know something that I should do. I know I should call out to God in prayer. But you're going to be invited right now uh, to just turn to each other, form groups of somewhere between 6 and 10, and just as a church family, just call out to God. I'm going to put these prayer prompts up on the screen so that you can kind of uh, see them and, and maybe that will stir some things. This is open book prayer, so have your Bible open. I want you to just turn to each other right now. If you want to move your chairs, that's perfectly fine. We'll reset them in just a moment. We're going to leave the house lights up so you can read your notes, so you can read your Bible and whatever God's calling you and stirring in you. Parents, this is where we pray for our kids. This is where we pray for ourselves. Roommates, this is where we pray for one another and say, God, work this in our home. Business owners and business employees, this is where you pray these things into our life and say, God, we need your help with these seven questions. So just now, church, turn to one another. Uh, If you're new here, I don't apologize. I just say this is family life. This is what we do. We make this a house of prayer. If you're a little uncomfortable, uh, I, I just deal with it. Sorry. Um, so church family, turn, uh, turn to one another and let's pray. It's going to be a little bit noisy as people pray. Just dial in. I'm going to close this out in, in, uh, in just a couple of minutes. So turn quickly and, and pray with one another.